Now the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Well, what a week to be given this text. Just the worst timing. I'm very happy and content in my outrage at what is happening in Wellington, both the protesters and those who support them and the police's inactions. And along comes Jesus with all his love your enemy stuff. Ugh. But I wonder, who are my enemies? And does it include those people in Wellington? And what does it mean to love them? If I'm honest, I'm struggling with all of this. So let's have a look at this reading. This week is part two of part two. It's part two of Jesus preaching, uh, part two of Jesus' sermon on the plain. Well, it's not really part two, it's just that the legendary writers have chopped it up into three bits. So, I mean, Luke just wrote this as one whole thing. But it's part two in terms of what we're listening to. And the sermon on the plain, or the sermon on the level place, is seen as part two of what Jesus read from Isaiah in his hometown of, I of Nazareth, declaring it all to be fulfilled. When he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. As I said last week, this teaching is a continuation of what Luke has offered in his Gospel so far. It echoes Mary's song of protest. It nods to lowly shepherds being the ones who are told of the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, not the rich and the powerful. No wealthy wise men in Luke's Gospel, that's Matthew's Gospel. It lays out the value system that lies at the heart of the year of the Lord's favour. The year of the Lord's favour in Torah pushed the reset button. It kind of put everything back to how it was supposed to be. The land was returned, the debts were forgiven, it would put everyone back on a level playing field so that God's people could again look to live the kind of community that is life-giving for all and for all life. The kind of community that Isaiah longed for. The kind of community that is longed for throughout Scripture. The kind of community that Jesus came to bring about and is still working to bring about. The kind of community that we pray for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done here on earth as in heaven. In his teaching and his, in his healing, Jesus describes the heart of the kind of community that is life-giving for all and for all life, and seeks to defeat the powers that destroy this community, the powers of sickness that ostracize people, the evil spirits that ostracize people, both of which broke community. But he went beyond that and addressed the economic and social powers that destroyed community. So here he is on this level place, this plain, 
where no one is more elevated than anyone else. Some would say the geography of the sermon echoes or reinforces the message of what Jesus is saying. And he reverses his society's reverence of the rich and the powerful. And he describes the most important people, the ones that we should look up to, the ones with the greatest honour, as being the poor, the hungry, the homeless, and those who are grieving. These are the ones of utmost importance. And now he goes on to describe how those who looked to follow him were to join him in living the reign of God. Living, as we pray, your will be done. And he says, but I say to you, I say to you who are still listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. The trouble is, we often read this as addressed to individuals, which it isn't. And we read it as requiring us to take whatever is being dished out to us, because our reward will be in heaven. In the worst cases, women and children in violent and abusive situations were told to turn the other cheek and take the abuse. Indigenous people were told to give to whoever asks and to not demand their land back. And so it goes. And the wealthy and the powerful have used this passage to entrench their entitlement and to justify their abuses, saying to people, just take it and you'll get your reward in heaven. But that is not what Jesus is asking people to do. His examples of loving, doing good, blessing and praying for were not about being a doormat. They were about resisting, but resisting in a non-violent way. For example, in a world where the honourable way masters could publicly strike their servants and slaves, was with the back of the hand, to turn the other cheek made it impossible for them to strike you with the back of the right hand. The only way they can strike you is with the front of the hand or the back of the left hand, both dishonourable actions. It's resistance, but it's non-violent resistance. Imagine if all the slaves and servants did that what that would do to the hierarchy. Or when soldiers insisted on your cloak and you gave them your shirt and rendered yourself naked, and imagine if whole villages did that, what that would do, as people saw the actual outcome of their actions. They would bring shame 
on those people. This way of non-violent resistance has inspired many through the centuries. One of the most famous exponents was Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, who used non-violent resistance to end the British rule in India with swift efficiency. Gandhi himself was in part inspired by two New Zealanders, the prophets Te Fiti Oromai and Tohu Kakehi of Parihaka in Taranaki. I remember uh, Bishop, Archbishop Philip talking about uh, when he was at Theological College in Auckland, he spent six months in India, I think it was six months, sometime in India, uh, on an exchange, and when he got there, people were very excited, and they wanted to know all about Te Fiti and Tohu. And he had to say to them, to his shame, he had never heard of them. He knows a lot about them now. The community at Parihaka resisted the actions of the settler government, who sought to claim land confiscated 15 years earlier. When the surveyors came, they went out and pulled up the survey pegs, and they fenced and ploughed up the roads, and they sowed the fields. In doing so, they asserted ongoing Māori and ownership of the land, but not in a violent way, in a non-violent way. The government responded by arresting the ploughmen, and so they would send out new ploughmen. These ploughmen and those who were arrested after them were sent to the South Island, where some of them died. They were never brought to trial. It's thought the government realised that if they had been brought to trial, the case would have been dismissed. It was easier just to hold them. Eventually, they were all released. But Māori Hill in Dunedin stands as a reminder of that time. Those are the Māori that hill is named after, the Māori of Parihaka. Eventually, on the 5th of November, 1861, in the face of 1,600 volunteers and constabulary field force troops, led by the enormously brave native minister John Bryce, with artillery on the hills overlooking the village, the people of Parihaka welcomed the invaders. With children at the front singing waiata, food was offered, and then the men and the women sat in silence. The men were arrested, and much of the village was destroyed, and some of the women and children were raped. Over the next weeks, many of the inhabitants were forced to leave. Tefiti and Tohu, with the others arrested, like the ploughmen before, were held without trial. In fact, Tefiti and Tohu were paraded around the country in cages. They were eventually released in 1883. They returned home and they sought about rebuilding their village. Just as in Jesus' time, they did not avoid calamity but they did avoid a massacre, and they kept their money. In 2017, the New Zealand government apologised for the wrongful arrests and imprisonment of the Parihaki men and their leaders Te Fiti Orungumai and Puhu Kākehi, and for the rape and molestation of the women and girls who were left behind when the men were imprisoned in the South Island. Minister Finlayson said 
This is a shameful part of New Zealand's history, which both Māori and Pākehā fought hard, found hard talking about the different reasons. The village and the work of Parihaka, the work of non-violent resistance, continues today. The invasion was not the end of their kaupapa, as it might have been. One of those inspired by Gandhi was Dr. Martin Luther King, who used non-violent resistance to advance the, the civil rights cause in the USA in the 1960s. There were many who disparaged his approach. Malcolm X and others wanted black Americans to have the right to protect themselves from abuse and violence from white vigilantes and police officers. And many white people, including liberal white people, claimed that a civil rights movement was causing divisions within American society. We hear the same thing today in New Zealand. So this is from a letter he wrote from his, uh, one of the times he was in prison. He didn't get in prison very often. He worked hard to not be in those kind of situations. He writes, the question is not whether we will be extremists. He was accused of being an extreme extremist by some of his fellow pastors. But what kind of extremist we will be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? The nation and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. The scenes on national television of unarmed protesters resisting the brutal tactics of police and others using non-violence eventually persuaded the President Kennedy that there was an urgent need for the civil rights legislation and he worked to get through, through Congress. And it helped President Johnson to win an election with an overwhelming support to enact change and to address issues of poverty, and, and, um, and racism within American society. If only the Vietnam War hadn't distracted him. These words of Jesus, so we can see then that on occasions nonviolent resistance might seem futile, but actually at all times it works, even when it seems not to work and it can bring about great change. So, these words of Jesus then. I might like to say that these words of Jesus are not about my attitudes to the Wellington protesters, but I suspect they are in part. But they are about how we as a community resists the powers that seek to destroy the life-giving community. How we as a community live in ways that through loving and doing good and blessing and praying for, build God's community in this place where all might thrive. Gandhi, Tefiti and Tohu and Martin Luther King show us what that might look like. But if I'm honest, that mostly feels beyond me because that does affect how I see those protesters, whether I want it to or not. But Jesus knew that was tough. 
And we can see in this text that Jesus knew that what he was offering was tough. And Luke knew it too. I mean, he's supposedly writing to the wealthy Theophilus. I wonder what he made about and made of all that Luke was writing. In the Common English Bible, Jesus begins this passage with, But I say to you who are willing to hear. And one of the commentaries I read suggested it can also be translated as, But I say to you who are still listening. Are we still listening? Or did we switch off through the Beatitudes? Are we still willing to hear? This way is not easy. Since I came back after my Christmas break, I've been carrying on with uh, an Advent reflection process. So during Advent for the last several years, uh, this uh, West Virginia Seminary, which is an Episcopalian seminary, uh, invites people around the world to create an online Advent calendar. So they put out an email every day which has got a theme and a reflection written by somebody and then people are invited to put up online with a hashtag Advent Word, uh, a picture and a reflection about that theme. And every year I sign up for that and uh, last year, the year before last, I actually did it. I finished on Christmas Day. Um, some days I had to do two, but mostly I was on track. Uh, last year, not on track, so I'm still finishing the Advent Word Reflections. I've got three to go. I've been doing about three a week since I came back to work. So I, was, I got about halfway through. It has been surprising how apt the themes of expectation and waiting that are at the heart of Advent uh, fitted where I was at when I came back to work with Omicron still at the border and we waited with fearful expectation about what might be coming next. And in a sense, we're still in that place. Last week, one of the words I looked at was magnify. And as I reflected on that, and I reflected on Mary's words of protest, and as I reflected on this reading, I was aware of my struggle with all of this. But I was also aware of the invitation to at least take a step, a step on the way that Jesus offers, the way of loving, the way of doing good, the way of blessing, the way of praying for my enemies, however I understand that. Sometimes, sometimes all I can do is pray for them and name how I feel about them. And sometimes that is enough. Because that little start allows the work of the Spirit to sometimes gently sand and sometimes radically alter my attitudes and my actions. So I offer my reflection again. It's the one that's in your pew sheet. And as I do that, I invite you to reflect on who are your enemies. And what does it mean to love and to do good and to bless and to pray for them? Jesus said, love your enemies, love those who bug us, who climb up our nose, who make us so angry 
and we fail to love as much as we might. Maybe just love a bit and somehow in the mix that smidgen of compassion is magnified, enlarged, stretched beyond our imagination and we learn to love, to let go, to breathe.